Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their egg dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, no one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the war like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord. And turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 4 verses 14 to 30. It's on page 1036 in your church Bibles. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Well, friends, keep your Bibles open. Uh, g'day, it's great to be uh, with you again. It's been a while since I've been down here, but it's great to see everyone. And I know there are a bunch of faces that I haven't yet met. I really look forward to doing that. I apologise, I've got to rush off to the other congregation again uh, this morning, but I'll be down here in a couple of weeks' time just to hang around, really, and you know, get in your road as much as possible. Anyway, it is good to be here, and I'm thankful uh, for our time together. Let's pray as we commence together. Heavenly Father, we do do give you thanks that your word speaks truth to us, that we can come before you and open your word and we can hear you speak. And we ask, Lord God, that we would have ears ready to hear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully on the screen there are four pictures. <clears throat> Does anyone want to kind of yell out, can they, can they tell us what any of them are? Which one? Andrew? Kitty Hawk. The first slide. What's happening in the first slide? The Wright Brothers. The Wright Brothers. First flight. Can anyone remember the, uh, the year? None of you were born. 1903. Okay. We took to the, we took to the sky for the first time. Uh, what, can anyone recognise the second one? The, yes. So the atomic bomb dropped in Hiroshima or Hiroshima in 1945. Uh, down bottom left-hand corner... Martin Luther King delivers his I Have a Dream speech in... Any... 64, 63, keep going. 62. So pretty good, guys. Well done. Henry, you weren't born. That's, uh, anyway. Um, and then finally, I think everyone knows. September 11. Yep, 9-11 attacks. Uh, events that changed the world. There are some events, aren't there? Some moments in life that have the power to change our world. Uh, there are some, and there are many, there are some that have had a significant impact. But there is one that we're looking at today, 
And it's unlikely, I think, to make it on a Google list like all these ones do, uh, but it is nonetheless one of the most significant ever. Uh, I think it's actually easy to kind of read over the passage that we've just read from Luke today and not recognise the magnitude of the moment that has been recorded for us here. I mean, the arrival, you'll, you'll know, the arrival of Jesus Christ has transformed history and it has actually been shaping history ever, ever since right up to our present day. The whole of history, remember, is calculated around the birth of Jesus. We divide history into BC and AD. Uh, BC before Christ, AD ad Domini in the year of our Lord. And so over the last 2,000 plus years, followers of Christ have shaped the course of history, mostly for good, although sadly not always. See, no event has impacted our world more than the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in our passage today, we hear Jesus himself explain what God has commissioned him to do. This is the moment when Jesus declares to the world why he has come and what he has come to do. It's a momentous claim. Uh, in fact, there are three main points I want us to see in this passage today. Uh, I've described them as a momentous claim, a monumental misunderstanding and a murderous response. But before we get to those points, let's just have a quick look at the setting if we can. Uh, we kind of picked up a little bit of that in the kids' talk this morning. Uh, but after Jesus' victory over Satan's temptations in the desert last week, uh, Jesus has been going throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and things are going well. Look at, chapter, let's look at verse 14 and following. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Uh, news about Jesus is spreading, and it's all positive. The people who hear him teach are praising him. But all of that is about to change. If we have a look at the end of our section in verses 28 and 29 of Luke chapter 4. Speaking to his hometown, he says, When they heard these things, what Jesus said, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up, and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Uh, this is uh, more than just a bad day at the office and uh, I'm kind of glad there are only cliffs around Botany this morning. Um, but in verse 15, he's glorified by all and then just a few verses later in verses 28 and following, they're filled with wrath and try and murder him. And that's what you call a fall from grace. Uh, what could cause such a turnaround? Well, we actually need to see what happens in between those two reports to understand what has turned the people against Jesus. And the first thing that Luke alerts us to is that Jesus does indeed make a momentous claim. Uh, so let's just have a quick look at it. Uh, in verse 16, uh, Jesus has come to Nazareth where he grew up. This is his hometown. These are his people. Uh, and he does what he normally does on the Sabbath. He goes to the local synagogue. And he's invited to teach the Bible. And he's, he's been, it's the kind of thing he's been doing all around Galilee. We've already heard that. We've heard about his fame, or they've heard about his fame spreading. And so they're actually keen to hear him teach. And look at verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And here's what Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah. 
He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now make no mistake, what Jesus is saying here is indeed a momentous claim. I think it's actually hard for us to grasp the sheer magnitude of what Jesus is claiming here. And then to understand what he's doing as he takes these words of the prophet Isaiah from chapter 61 in Isaiah and then he applies them to himself. Now notice here that Jesus doesn't use the kind of drop and flop method of Bible reading. You know, where you get your Bible, you just drop it, see where it opens up. That's where God wants me to read today. No, he actually unrolls the scroll, we're told, and he finds the place where Isaiah speaks this prophecy. That is, Jesus turns deliberately to Isaiah 61 and the eyes of everyone, we're told, are fixed on him. What would he say about this incredibly significant, important passage from the book of Isaiah, the promise of God? And he says, I am the fulfilment of this scripture. That is, here is what God has sent me to do. I am the one anointed by God for this task. See, Jesus is claiming to be God's anointed king, his Messiah, his Christ. And so that's why this is such a momentous claim. But what we need to understand from the book of Isaiah is that God's anointed would fulfill three important roles. In Isaiah, God's anointed refers to his king who would rule over God's eternal kingdom. But secondly, God's anointed also refers to his servant. God's spirit would be upon God's servant and he would die to achieve forgiveness of sins and salvation for God's people. And then finally, God's anointed refers to one whom God's spirit would empower to crush God's enemies and bring final salvation to all of God's people. And so there's this threefold role that Jesus is claiming to be. I am the one that Isaiah was talking about. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. He has sent me. And so it's a huge claim. And what is it that God has sent Jesus to do? Well, notice it's to proclaim a message. Now, we see it three times there, don't we? Verse 18, to proclaim good news to the poor. Or again in verse 18, to proclaim liberty or release to captives and sight to the blind. Or verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. See, the salvation that God offers to the world comes to us as a message proclaimed by Jesus. But we need to be clear about who this message of salvation is for. Now, Christians, can I say, have pointed to this passage in the past to suggest that the church ought to be agitating for social change through various means and through political activism. Now, more commonly, some have suggested that there are two parts to the ministry of Jesus, forgiveness of sins and social action, that is, bringing relief from suffering. I spent the first 30 years of my life in the Salvation Army. Uh, we had a slogan that said, heart to God, hand to man. That's not a bad slogan. To truly love God is to genuinely love and care for the people of this world. However, that is not what Jesus is saying here. 
When Isaiah speaks of the poor, the blind, the oppressed, the captive, he's speaking of more than the physically poor or blind or captive. See, there's no doubt throughout Jesus' ministry and in fact right throughout the whole Bible that both God the Father and Jesus have a genuine concern for those who suffer physically because of injustice and sin. But Jesus' concern here is not primarily with the physical, but with the spiritual. Now, in the context of Isaiah, when you read there, the, the poor, the blind, the captive, the oppressed, it actually refers to the spiritual state of Israel in their sin and rebellion against God. See, God's people are poor because of their sin. They are blind because they will not listen to the truth of God's word and are under his judgment. In Isaiah, they're oppressed because they've become captive to their enemies because of God's judgment upon them. There's a variety of places that you can read. Isaiah 6, verses 9 to 12, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 59 are all places where we see that. But the thing about Jesus' claim to be God's anointed saviour is that he's not just the saviour of Israel because he's God's appointed saviour for the whole world. I mean, look at what God himself says about his anointed servant in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. You can see it there on the screen. He says, it, it is too, this is God speaking, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, God's servant king will bring the possibility of salvation from sin and judgment to everyone, to the whole world. And so Jesus is saying that he has come for all people who recognise that they are poor, blind sinners who stand under God's judgment and desperately need to be rescued. And it has nothing to do with our social status. This is, this is a momentous claim. So how did Jesus' hometown crowd respond well let's have a look verse 22 and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth it seems they're impressed and the passage jesus has read is a promise from god of great hope for israel they like what he has to say and this is their local boy made good but can i say here is where things also begin to unravel i mean the issue of jesus's ancestry raises questions in their minds. They actually can't fit his family background with his claims. I mean, his dad is just a carpenter. And so despite their amazement at his words, they're actually sceptical. Look at verse, the second part of verse 22. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And the answer is no. No, a million times no. Now, of course, in one sense, yes, he was Joseph's son, but to see him simply as Joseph's son is a monumental misunderstanding. Luke has already been at pains to point out Jesus' true ancestry, even just in the first four chapters of Luke. In chapter 3, verse 22, when Jesus is baptised by John, a voice came from heaven declaring of Jesus, you are my beloved son. Or the family tree in chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, declares Jesus to be son of Adam, the son of God. Or even as the devil himself admitted in chapter 4, verses 3 and 9 last week, that this is the son of God. So he's not merely the son of Joseph. That is to miss the point entirely. And it accounts for the change in Jesus' tone. 
See verse 23? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did, did in, at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. They've heard reports about things he has supposedly done just 30-odd kilometres away up in Capernaum. You can see it there on the map. You get an idea where Nazareth and Capernaum is. But the proverb that Jesus says they will quote is a challenge. Do some miracles here in Nazareth as well as you did them in Capernaum to prove yourself. And so Jesus makes the point in verse 24, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, one level, we get it, don't we? I mean, this guy is the local carpenter's son. Sure, he speaks well. He even, we even like the things that he's saying. But come on. Do you really expect us to believe that you're God's Messiah, his anointed saviour? But the thing is, Jesus hasn't just appeared on the scene unannounced either. I mean, Luke tells us back in chapter 1, verse 52, that since childhood, Jesus had increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. In chapter 3, John the Baptist announced to the crowds when they thought that John might have been the Messiah, that he was simply preparing for the one who was coming after him who was much greater than he was. And the crowds who were there when Jesus was baptised by John heard the voice from heaven about Jesus. And now there are reports about him circulating across the region of Galilee. See, Jesus hasn't just kind of put the chisels down yesterday and declared today that he's God's king. And so he says to them, you guys have got a history of this sort of thing. See, Jesus knows that many of Israel's prophets weren't well received. God's message often meets with rejection, which he goes on to demonstrate in verses 25 to 27. He actually singles out the period of Elijah and Elisha, prophets of, of Israel. It's actually a period which was one of their lowest and most wicked periods in Israel's history. Elijah and Elisha were both rejected and persecuted in Israel during their ministries, but both of them had performed miracles outside their homeland for non-Jews, for Gentiles, those hated by the Jews. And so Jesus is warning his hometown that their rejection of him is just like some of the lowest periods in Israel's past. There's a choice to make about Jesus, and a wrong one will exclude them from the salvation and blessing that Jesus brings. And his offer of salvation is not just for Israel. His offer of salvation is for the whole world. And so as the Apostle John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, misunderstanding who Jesus is, I think, remains a common problem today, don't you think? And it's dangerous, isn't it? I mean, just recently, Mark Latham, the one-time Labor leader and now One Nation MP, was uh, standing up for religious freedom in an interview that uh, he, was, he was having. In the interview, he claims to be an atheist, but he said that he was concerned about the unscientific philosophies such as gender fluidity and especially the sexualisation of young children in the state education system. And he went on to say this. He said, as a Western civilization, we are heavily influenced by the values, tenets, and history of Christianity. He said, as I often say to my children every day when we wake up, we might not consciously think of it and talk about it straight away, but how we conduct ourselves during the day, our moral sense of right and wrong, good and bad, 
the rules of civil society that we follow are heavily anchored in the Bible. The Ten Commandments, for instance, remain in large part guidance in the moral standards of civil society. Whoever he was, and whatever his significance, Jesus was undoubtedly the greatest moral teacher in history. He lived, he taught lessons that are timeless, and probably more relevant today than even in his own time. So all of those things guide and underpin so many of our civilizational values. That's Mark, Mark Latham. Now, I'm thankful that Mark is concerned about the same kind of things that concern many Christians. I'm thankful that he wants to defend religious freedom. But nonetheless, Mark is a monumental misunderstanding of who Jesus is. I mean, there is no doubt that Jesus was a great teacher. But that is not what Jesus is claiming here. Jesus hasn't come to teach us how to live right. He's come to save us from the judgment of God because none of us are capable of living right, even when we know what the Bible teaches. So if you don't accept him as your saviour, then you remain under God's judgment. You might come to church each week, but that doesn't make you a Christian. See, have you understood Jesus rightly? He has come to be your saviour and indeed your Lord. As uh, C.S. Lewis puts it, Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic, which I think some probably thought he was. But if he's neither of those two things, which don't make sense of the evidence, then he is the Lord of the universe and he is the only way that any of us can be saved. And so we need to be careful not to misunderstand Jesus. So how does his hometown then respond to his pointed warning to them? Well, look at verse 28. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went, uh, sorry, he went away. Well, how do they respond? Well, they want to kill him. It's a murderous response. They take him up on one of the cliffs around Nazareth uh, with the intent of throwing him off. And as they understand his warning and his rebuke, their admiration of him turns to fury. But this time, uh, but, his, but Jesus' time to die for the sins of the world, while it would come, has not yet come. And so what we read here is a strange thing, but he simply walks away from them. Now, can I say, we don't like being confronted with our sin, do we? I mean, defensiveness is our first port of call normally. Excuse-making, buck-passing. But so often it's anger. We hate being exposed by the truth. We lash out. And the people of Nazareth are living examples of exactly why Jesus needed to come into our world. We are so full of sin and rebellion against God. We're not basically good people who sometimes do bad things. We're people who are so broken on the inside. And one of the things that is fundamental to our identity is that we are sinners in need of a saviour. We simply cannot live in a way that consistently pleases God. We're captives to sin. We need a saviour. And Jesus says that it's precisely for people like you and me that I have come to proclaim good news. And it's not a message of judgment, but a message of salvation from your sin. It's a message that changes your world. 
In fact, that's exactly what meeting Jesus in his word does do. It changes our world, your world, for the better. It's painful to admit that we're sinners. And yet if we're honest, we know that there's nothing that spoils our happiness more than our own sin. But how good is it to know that Jesus came to save sinners and in turn to give you life and freedom? See, my question, I guess, is have you responded to Jesus' call? I have no doubt that many of you have, but maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've never actually done that. See, our world is still spinning today because God wants people to turn to Jesus. And if you haven't already, then you can do it today. Come and chat with Tom, chat with Andy. But before we conclude, I just want to point out something that I think is really important here. Uh, Cast your eyes back just quickly to verse 21. Because Jesus has just read from the prophet Isaiah... He's handed the scroll back and look at what he says. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Notice it's as God's word is proclaimed that God does his work of salvation. It's as we hear and believe God's word to us. As we listen to the scriptures and trust them that we are saved and transformed. It's not by seeing Jesus in the flesh or by experiencing miracles That's not the way that God saves people. It's by hearing and responding to his word. See, what do you believe about the Bible? See, Jesus himself teaches us that it's God's word, written by human hands, inspired by God. And the whole Bible is written so as to guide us to one overwhelming conclusion, and that is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, sent to save men and women, boys and girls, from their sin. It's the authority for all that we do as Christians. Otherwise, we'll have alternative authorities. So from beginning to end, the Bible is all about Jesus. And so first, we need to ask the question, have I responded to God's call, to Jesus' call? And then secondly, can I say, if you have, have you joined his mission? Because this is the good news of God to every single one of us. It's good news for me, it's good news for you, And therefore, it's equally good news for me to pass on to my family, to my neighbour, to my colleague, to my friend. Jesus has come as saviour for the whole world. He is the best news possible for all who receive him, who believe in his name. Because to those who do, he gives the power, the right to become children of God. That's a glorious message, isn't it? Let's give thanks. Pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a gracious, merciful, loving God. That you know us inside out. You know every thought that we have. You know every action that we perform. You know the things that we've done behind closed doors that no one sees. And you love us. You don't leave us to ourselves. You send your own son into the world to die on a cross and save us from our sin. And so, Father, please give us is to hear such great news. Prevent us from misunderstanding how to rightly respond to Jesus and help us to rejoice that you are our saviour. In Jesus' name, amen.